or just bringing the real authentic you with all the question marks with all the you know who knows with all the did i make the right decision i don't know like with all of because that's real life that's real life and <laughs> and and you know if you're listening to this and you're early in your sobriety or you're thinking about jumping in to sobriety and getting help it's okay to not know and it's okay to be scared and it's okay to change things and sacrifice things we have to we have to do whatever whatever it takes to be healthy and for some of us that means changing everything Welcome to the Together Sober Podcast. I am your host, Louise Barnett, former Fortune 100 Global Sales Director turned Jay Shetty Accredited Life Coach. Each week, we will provide you a safe space of guidance, empathy, accountability, and support, helping you to find effortless sobriety and mental peace. Before we get started, you guys, please, please, please make sure to hit that subscribe button, like this episode, and rate and review the Together Sober podcast. This is actually the only way that we can grow organically to start impacting more and more lives to find lasting sobriety and mental peace. Welcome back to another episode of the Together Sober podcast, where we are working every week to accomplish our mission which is to create survival guides out of our collective stories. This week is no exception to supporting that mission. And I'm really, really so excited to introduce this guest to you for several reasons. Um, this individual, and I'll share a little bit about her story with you, um, is an individual that is relatively early in her days of recovery, just having crossed that year mark, which is such an incredible milestone. And she really is going to speak to us today about the reality of this journey and what her journey so far into recovery has looked like. And she's had some big bumps and bruises along the way. And I'm so thankful to her generosity of her time and her willingness to share some of her experiences with you today. So uh, I am talking about Leah and we're sharing Leah's story today. She had a chaotic childhood. She'll share with you how her beginnings began with substances and alcohol use. She truly started drinking at the age of 12 years old. And then into her, you know, adolescence and, and teens and 20s, she worked in the restaurant and wine industry for 16 years, which is something I related immediately to having 20 years in the restaurant and hotel industry. It is known to have, you know, these behaviors run rampant. Leah then became a stay-at-home mom in 2008. And she didn't stop using until October 22nd, 2021. Leah is sitting here with us today, finally living with a clear mind and quite honestly, learning who she is. 
She is a staffing agency coordinator, chairperson for the Oxford House, and just like the rest of us, she's figuring this whole thing out. Leah feels passionate about sharing her journey in recovery in hopes of helping others, and additionally to help remove the stigma by opening up and hoping that someone else out there who might be feeling scared to take that first step in recovery. So, so <clears throat> grateful to have you here. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thanks, Louise. I, I got a little emotional just listening to you talk about me like that. Um, it has been, it has been a journey. It has been a journey. So as you said, yes, I, 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 um, I'm early in recovery, um, fairly early. I did hit my one year mark on October 22nd and, um, it was weird coming up to it. I started to feel a little like, should I feel more excited? Like why, what, why am I just like, Oh, well, I hit a year, you know, whatever. But it, there, every, every milestone that you hit in that first year, whether it's, you know, five days, 30 days, 90 days, and then up into the months, I always had some quiet time of reflection and, and would think about like where I I've been and how I got to where I was. So I'll share, I'll share that. Um, as you said, I, I started my, my drinking career when I was around 12 years old, um, but I, I was born into a family of, of chaos. Um, I didn't meet my real biological father until I was 22 years old, so there was always that missing link there. Um, and my mom was a young single mom, um, having had her own very chaotic childhood and no um, real, you know, she wasn't mothered well or, or parented well. So she didn't have any experience or anyone to look up to on, on how to parent herself. And she was, you know, kind of left to her own devices, but, but was young. And, and, um, and so I was often on my own and when I wasn't on my own, there was always partying and, and, and just chaos going on around me. I, actually had my first drink when I was about two years old. Um, my bottle was accidentally filled with a screwdriver um, and I drank it. Um, and no one realized it until I was, you know, a drunk two-year-old. Um, and then when I was around, I think maybe five or six, there someone had made pot brownies and they were on the counter and I grabbed one and ate one. So I don't, I don't hold like these like uh, feelings towards my family for those things, but, but it does speak to my brain development, mm -hmm. um, and that being environmental and then also what was put into my body at a young age and developing those, those brain, um, pathways. And so, um, you know, the, the chaos continued, we moved, um, every year I had changed schools every year. Um, there was never really like a sense of like, um, feeling grounded for me as a child. I just never really knew what to expect each day. We didn't have money. We didn't have, you know, things. I, I wasn't like ever homeless or anything like that, but, but it was never, you know, it just, it wasn't, there was no peace. Um, and, and so I, growing up that way, um, it's, you know, you're always looking to fill that hole, right. Of like feeling safe, um, feeling like you belong, feeling, you know, 
and all of those things. And so when we were, it was about 1989, I think um, I was about 12 or 13 and we moved up to Friday Harbor on San Juan Island in Washington. And it's very small island, very small town. Being a kid who didn't feel like she fit in anywhere, moving to a small town like that with people who had been there their whole lives and were really tight knit um, in middle school was really the, the catalyst to launch me into, um, into my addiction. And it started with drinking and smoking pot and uh, taking acid and taking mushrooms and finding speed, like really anything that was around, um, I did. <laughs> I loved it all. I wanted it. Um, and I didn't care if I got in trouble. I didn't care if I, the police found me. I didn't care about any of those things. I just, you know, there was never any real consequence. Um, yeah. that I felt like. And so I just kept going and kept going and I worked, I always had a really strong work ethic and I wanted money. So I, I worked, um, all the time and partied all the time. Um, didn't graduate high school, um, then ended up moving to Hawaii, bought a one-way ticket to Hawaii, uh, when I was 18. And, um, I just really launched into chaos there. Um, I, found my love of cocaine there uh, and was doing, hanging out with some pretty big uh, drug dealers, uh, cocaine guys over there. And um, my bosses at the restaurant I worked at would lay out lines of cocaine on the toilet paper holder in the morning for us at like five o'clock in the morning. So it was just like, it was just, that was just the life, you know? Um, and then as you know, working in restaurants and, and, that service industry you're drinking at work you're drinking after work and when you're young who cares if you have a hangover like you get up and go it's not a big deal um so i was i just went that way um i did move i moved back and forth from hawaii a couple times back to washington and then i ended up moving to utah for a while uh then back to hawaii <laughs> and all, all of these moves were uh, me feeling like um this place sucks. This sucks. This doesn't work. This isn't working. When, you know, as an adult that's now learning about, um, what real life is like, it wasn't, it wasn't the place and it wasn't the other people. It was, it was what I was doing. Right. Yeah. Um, and then in 2000, I moved to Seattle. Um, I did go back to school. Um, and while I was in school, I ended up getting pregnant with my first son who I was 26 at the time. Um, he's 20 now and, um, moved in with his dad and his dad was just kind of a pushover and didn't care what I was doing. Maybe he did care, but he was too scared to say anything. I don't know, but I just, I went back to work right away. I was working on the time. I was staying out all night. I wouldn't come home. I was super drunk, taking care of my son, his first birthday party was a kegger. Um, you know, it was just like everything was a party. And I just, I don't have, I never had an off button. I talk to people about this all the time. They're like, didn't you ever throw up? Didn't you ever? Da, da, da. I, I maybe once in a while, but I, I could consume insane amounts of alcohol. Mm. And um, I, when my son was two, I did get a DUI. Um, I flipped my Jeep in my driveway. <laughs> it's not funny, but I mean, I was a block from my house at a bar, drove home, took the turn too hard and flipped my Jeep 
in the driveway, tried to push it over right on this highway. And of course, all these cars saw the crash. And so here comes the police and the fire trucks and everything. Got a DUI, had to go to alcohol information school as part of my punishment where I learned how to um, get away with drinking while having to take UAs. Like that's all mm -hmm. I learned there. <laughs> you know, it didn't teach mm -hmm. me anything else. That's so um, interesting. I <laughs> spoke with somebody um, earlier that said, her first experience in rehab was how to teach her how to moderate, right? Like it, it, yeah, it, yeah. Because because you were not embracing that experience to release no. alcohol from your life. It no. was just okay. How can I? How do how I? How can I get system? away with this? Yeah, it was yeah. literally. And I was I was working as a cute like a wine steward in a grocery store. So I had wine reps bringing me cases of wine, and I'm not supposed to be drinking, but I'm like, okay, I know that I have this class. On Tuesday, so I can just drink this box of wine between this day and this day, mm -hmm. and then clear it out of my system, and then pass my UA, and then go back to you know whatever. I just that's I didn't pay attention in the class. I didn't care. It was just part of getting the DUI reduced to a reckless driving or whatever, so that I didn't have a DUI on my record. So I, there was never any like there was just never any real consequence to what I was doing, and so mm -hmm. I just kept going. And it's harder to stop. I, yeah. Right. And then I thought you know, I come from this family of, of, of addiction and, and there's a lot of heroin users and um, meth users and things like that. And I thought, well, I don't do those things. Mm. So I'm actually a better parent and I'm, I'm breaking the cycle of our family. I, I really truly thought this the whole time because I was drinking and drinking is not only socially acceptable, it's socially expected. Correct. And, um, and especially in, um, the restaurant industry. And once I became a stay at home mom, which happened in about 2008, um, I, I have two other sons now, um, and I stayed home with them for 13 years. Uh, they attend a really, um, beautiful private school and all the school functions involve cocktail hour right? All the play dates, all the things. So it was never, it, it, no one was ever like, oh my gosh, she's drinking champagne in the morning. It was, that's what we did, right? And so it, it just like, I, I was an alcoholic, definitely from the time I started drinking it, 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 it never, I never tried to moderate. I never tried to I never, I might've been like, I'm not feeling that good or whatever, but I would just push through it. And, you know, if you want to play hard, you got to work, work through it and still get up and go to work or take the kids to school or whatever. I just was an autopilot, like all the time and never really doing anything of substance in my life and missing out on a lot of things. I don't remember a lot of things. So then becoming a stay-at-home mom, um, my two younger sons have a different dad than my older son, and he traveled a lot for work um, in the early years of, of my kids, and so I was on my own all the time, and I I love drinking by myself. That was something that, you know, I, I hear people say, like, oh, you know, once you start drinking by yourself, then, you know, blah, blah, blah. I loved it. I loved drinking by myself. I had no problem with it. I, it's how I clean the house. It's how I do laundry. That's how I, you know do anything. Right. And, um, and then of course the pandemic hit and, um, I could get 
Costco sized bottles delivered to the house. And my neighbor, we lived in this like little dead end street and all of our neighbors would have cocktail hour outside every day in the street. And, um, it just really turned into an all day, every day drinking situation. And, um, like with no, no boundaries. I was in school at the time getting my AA. And I remember the, you know, the last class I took for my, to graduate was the psychology of addiction. And I remember sitting at home, like taking this class, watching these videos, reading these things and drinking the whole time and being like, well, I, you know, I know what's going on right now. I know what I'm doing to myself, but you know, we're living in this pandemic. So who cares? There's always an excuse. There's always, always an excuse. Always. Mm -hmm. So in the spring of 21, I just really like, I was like, ah, I don't feel good. Like I just started to not feel well. And I knew it had to do with the drinking. And, um, so I started trying things. I tried this app called cutback coach and it would be like, okay, you enter in how many drinks you have a day. And then it would tell you like, okay, so today try to have this many drinks. And I took it as like a challenge. I'm like, well, I can have that many drinks in an hour and then some, <laughs> like, you know, it was like, that didn't work. And then my doctor, you know, I, I, I had always told, she knew I had a drinking problem, but she didn't really know the extent of it. Right. Cause no, none of us tell the truth when we go to the doctor mm-hmm. and she said, well, why don't you just um, drink every other day? And that will literally cut your drinking in half. And I was like, brilliant. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't ever get that every other day. Mm-hmm. I'll start tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. Tomorrow will be the day I don't drink, but that day never came. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it. And I was like starting to realize that I really, really had a problem. And once I like started taking a look at myself and my drinking, I started to realize like I was blacked out half of my life. I would, I was in late stage alcoholism, especially towards the end for like, for real. And I went to my doctor and I was honest and I told her how much I was drinking. And she said, you have to go get an ultrasound right now. Like right of now. Of your liver? Yes. Okay. And I went and they saw um, cirrhosis, signs of cirrhosis. And so they sent me to the liver clinic at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. And they did a, um, I can't remember what the scan is called, but they, it's, it takes a whole bunch of pictures um, of your liver. And that came back showing signs of cirrhosis. But the liver doctor came in after they saw the pictures and she said, are you actively drinking? And I said, I am. Um, but I'm planning to go to get some help. Um, I thought at this point I would just be going to like outpatient treatment. I was like, I can't go away. I have kids. Right. And, um, and she said, well, let's see what let's, let's this, it might not be cirrhosis. Um, it could just be very fatty. It, It shows up differently if you're actively drinking. And they said, okay, but really got scared. I mean, that's terrifying. And, um, went and got my assessment done, which is a whole other conversation about what, how our, um, how our system works on trying to get help. It was, it was awful. It was, it was my choice. I wasn't being forced into it. I was begging literally to get an assessment and it, it took a month. 
it took a month of phone calls every single day. And I was like, what do people do who don't have access to phones? What do people do who don't have time to do this? What do people do? No wonder people can't stop and they're living on the streets. Like I, I, this is an addiction that is, you don't even want to stop. So to even advocate for yourself is a challenge in and of itself. And it was, yeah, (laughs) it was so sad. And I was just, raging full of anger. I mean, I was, I was, I just couldn't believe it. So anyway, I finally ended up getting an assessment and they were like, you, you have to go to inpatient like right away. Based Um, on your assessment, based on my physical assessment of your liver. Uh, no, my drug and alcohol assessment of my life of overall assessment, like what the, my drug and alcohol assessment. And they were like, you, you have to go right. Like you need treatment. So they, they got me a bed. I think it was like two weeks, um, from that date of my assessment, they had a bed ready for me. So I had about a week and a half, maybe two weeks. And then I, they don't do detox at the treatment center I went to. So they, they, set me up with this detox center. I don't remember getting there. Um, I got a hotel the night before with some friends and, uh, my best friend stayed with me. Um, she took care of me and I literally just drank all night. Um, and then got up in the morning and went to get breakfast and just sat at the bar and drank. And then I drank, I ate like a whole bunch of edibles drank, like just drank all the way in the car on the way there. I don't, I don't have, I have like faint recollection of getting there, but anyway, I got there and, um, I'm sure my friend was ready to launch me in the door there. I was, I was a mess at that point. I was scared. You know, we, some of us get forced into these things and some of us choose to do these things, but whether you're forced into it, whether you you decide to do it on your own. It's a terrifying thing. I didn't know what to expect. I don't, I've never been to treatment. I've never been to an inpatient place. And in my head, I'm thinking I'm going to end up in a room with somebody, some crazy crackhead. I'm going to get, I'm going to be fighting some bitches and like, you know, all these things. Right. So I get to the, the detox place and I am the only female there that's detoxing from alcohol. The rest are detoxing from fentanyl. And it was Zombieville. It was terrifying. And they put you in these scrubs and then you sleep on this plastic mattress. And when I finally like kind of came to and realized where I was, it was like being in a jail. It was like bare beige walls, no windows, nothing. And I was just like, I was beating my head against the walls. I was crying. Um, they wouldn't give me my medication because I was still drunk. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was not a fun experience. So I was there for five nights and then the, the, um, inpatient center I went to picked me up and drove me there. And it was like going to a five-star resort after at that detox center. I was like, I love this place. Um, I went to a place and I chose it because I always knew that, um, you know, it wasn't that I was like, so against the 12 step program, but I didn't want that to be the only mm-hmm. part of, of my treatment plan. And I chose a place that was out in the woods, um, had a lot of native American based treatment plans as well as, um, Reiki and acupuncture and yoga. And I wanted all of that, that holistic healing. Right. Yeah. And so I chose that place and uh, I, 
I wish I could live there. Like I didn't want to leave. I ended up getting a week long extension. Um, but the things that happened there were real, um, that changed the course of my life at this point. So like two weeks into being at the treatment center's name is Olala. Um, after two weeks of being at Olala, I had a phone conversation with my kid's dad and we have been in a very lame relationship for 13 years. We haven't slept in the same room. We don't have a relationship and he's quite controlling and probably really hated my drinking, but didn't know what to do about it. And then once I admitted that I had a problem and I was going away, it just, he's, hasn't treated me well since, you know? Um, and when I got there, I made a phone call to him at one point, like two weeks after being there. And I said, I just feel like everything's changing for me. And when I come home, it's all going to be the same there. Mm. And he said, yeah, that must suck. And I was like, oh my God, I can't go home. Mm. (laughs) Like I'm good. I can't go home. What am I going to do? Like if I go home and everything's the same there, he's not, it's not that he's a drinker, but like, we don't like each other. And I hid from that relationship heavily in my drinking Mm -hmm. and could tolerate my life because I was not in it. Mm -hmm. And so my counselor at Olala had mentioned like, like sober living houses. And I was like, no, I'm not not moving to a halfway house. Are you out of your mind? Like, that's not a thing. Um, And that night, that night after that phone call, uh, a panel came into the treatment center for a place called Oxford House. And they talked about what Oxford House is. And I was like, I want to go there. (laughs) I want to go there. So I applied. the next day I applied to several houses. You call, you do the process. I was accepted into the first house that I interviewed with Mm -hmm. and I um, got a grant um, from King County for, to pay for three months of my rent there and um, left my treatment center on December 1st of 2021 and went door to door to um, a recovery house meaning I had to call my kids and tell them that I wasn't coming home Mm -hmm. even after I was done with my treatment. And, um, what was that that experience like? It was really scary and hard because telling them I was leaving in the first place was so scary and hard, but knowing that I was like going to be coming home afterwards. And now I'm like, I don't, I don't know what the plan is, but I know I can't, I, maybe I just need a little more time to, um, to really get myself centered and straight, and then I'll be ready to go back to the house and live there. Um, and so that's kind of how that conversation went, but, but I was able to tell them, you know, I'll see you every day the house was, was just a few miles from their house. So I picked them up from school every day. So I moved into this house with, um, there were six other women there and, um, you know, that was a scary thought too. Like (laughs) moving into a house with six women in recovery with all kinds of backgrounds. And then there's like all these rules and like all these things. And I'm sharing a room with someone. And the first girl I shared a room with woman, I should say she was in her sixties. 
it didn't go well. And she ended up moving out about a couple of weeks after I was there. And, and we got, it was a, like, I had to be, my, my anger was still there. I had not worked through all, like I was still. You're fresh out of recovery. Yeah. Fresh out of recovery. And she did, she did and said some things that were, she wanted me to put my hands on her and it was very close. It was very, very close. And I didn't, but I got really scared at that point. I was like, Oh, I still don't know how to manage my emotions. Mm -hmm. Am I going to be able to live in this situation? Like, where am I going? I don't, am I going home? Am is this my home? Like what's happening? Um, but I stuck it out there and I ended up being voted in. So there's Oxford houses are all over the country. Um, in Washington state, we have, I think like 350 Oxford houses, mm -hmm. which is the, I think we have the most houses in any state. Um, and then within each state, there are chapters. Um, and my house was in uh, chapter 23. We had, at that time we had uh, uh, 11 houses, 12, 12 houses. And I was voted in as the chapter chair in February. So with just a few months of recovery under me, I'm now the person that looks after 12 houses of recovery. I mean, so how did what? that make you feel when you got that what? phone call? <laughs> uh, that was, that was like, so we were all still on zoom at that point. So we we're having our chapter meeting on zoom and I'm nominated and everybody's like second and votes me in. And I'm like, I don't know what this means, but I had people in my house that had been on chapter and our outreach worker was amazing. And I, I took, I took it on full force and, um, I really loved it. I became very involved in that program. Mm -hmm. And then in April, I got a, another job, <laughs> uh, you know, remember I've been home for 13 years as a stay at home yeah. mom. Uh, I took a job at a staffing agency running, um, I was staffing security amongst other things, but mostly staffing security for the, all the stadiums in Seattle. So for the Seahawks, for the Mariners, for the concerts, for the Kraken, for the storm, all, all the big stadiums. So, and, and if you think about who works at staffing agencies, it's a lot of people in active addiction. It's a lot of people with mental health problems. Um, so my job was just uh, tumultuous every single day. Um, so I was looking after these 12 houses. Um, I was getting phone calls in the middle of the night, during the day, 24 hours a day, either for my work or for someone in a house that had relapsed or a fight that's broken out or any number of things, right? Plus I have to attend, um, meetings across the state, um, and just different things. Right. And, I'm new and like, I had a lot of support and I was, I was doing really well at all of it. I thought, um, but around, around my 10 month mark, um, I had had a really crazy week. A lot of things had happened and I just, I was getting comfortable in, in my life. Um, I'm good at this. I got this. I can handle all these things. Look at me. Like I'm sober and I am doing all of this and people look to me for advice and people are like, Oh my gosh, Leah, you're doing so well. Like you're so strong. And, um, it was a Friday and every Friday I would go to a meeting, um, the native American group meeting in Seattle. And it's my favorite meeting. Um, and I was, had had like I think I had worked like five, 12 hour days or something in a row. Plus, you know, all the other things I was doing. And I was like, 
got into my mirror in my office and was like freshening up my face and I couldn't look at myself. And I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> something's happening. And I kind of knew right then what it was. Um, so the next morning I was scheduled to hold a chapter meeting for Oxford House. So I grabbed all my Oxford note notebooks and things and I went back to my Oxford house and I dropped all of that off and I packed up my medications and a change of clothes because I knew there might be a chance I couldn't come home. And uh, I drove up to the meeting that I go to and I sat in the parking lot and it was like, <gasps> like that kind of crying. Like I was like, what is happening? And I finally forced myself to go into the meeting and I sat in the back, which I never do um, and realized it was birthday night and they were handing out coins. And I was like, nope. And I jumped up and left and a couple of people kind of followed me and I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And I jumped in my car and I drove to the drugstore and I walked in and the guy said, we close in 15 minutes. And I told him to fuck off. And I walked to the back and I bought a six pack of beer or grabbed a six pack of beer. And I walked up to the register and he rang it up. It was $12, 12 cents. My mother's birthday is 12, 12. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> like it was, mm -hmm. I, looking back on all of this, like I really felt like a demon or something had just like taken over me. But anyway, I bought the beer. I got it in my car. I drove to this like boat launch area in Seattle where like everybody hangs out on a Friday night partying. And I just sat in my car and I, I like held the beers and I caressed the cans and I talked to the cans and I was just crying and I texted someone knowing that they couldn't really get me out of the situation, but that they would contact someone else. And it kind of went down the chain that way until it, until one of my roommates, uh, that's as strong as I am personality wise, um, was able to pull me out of the situation. I never opened the cans. I never drank. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I didn't know if I sat there much longer, I probably would have. Yeah, um, yeah. and we gave the beer to some people at the bus stop <laughs> And, um, we went home and she said, you know, you have this chapter meeting tomorrow. You don't have to do it. And I said, oh, I'm doing it. And I'm going to tell on myself. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really important. Right. So, um, because, because everyone is always saying, Leah, you're doing so well, Leah, Leah, you're doing great. Like, how are you that's doing them? Just the type of thing that's going to get you back in active addiction. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here pressure. listening to this story the whole time and thinking, A, how incredible it is, yes, that you're doing all of these things. So I'm with that camp. But at the same time, I'm also thinking to myself, what are you doing for yourself? Right, right. And, and there's this added pressure when people are like, you're so strong and they are calling on you for support and you're, they're like all of this, right? So I thought it was really important that I go to this meeting and sit in front of all of these people who look, look to me for support and tell them that I'm weak too. <laughs> this, that I'm still, I'm in, I'm in recovery. I'm brand new in this. I have, I have been drinking and using drugs from the time I was 12 until the time I was 45 that's a really long time. The scale's not very balanced yet, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I need you guys to know that real work has to be done. My eyes got opened up by that experience. I was like, oh, I need to be doing my own work on your A game. Yeah. I need to be 
what am I doing? Where is my program? You know, I'm still actively in treatment. I go to outpatients still. Mm-hmm. Um, I just moved across the state. So what that looks like is a little different now, but, um, yeah. but I'm still very much um, in active in my recovery. And I wasn't doing that. I wasn't practicing any self-care. Yeah. And when I say things like active in my recovery, I don't necessarily mean going to 90 meetings in 90 days or even a meeting every week. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you practicing any mindfulness? Are you meditating? Are you taking a walk? Are you getting fresh air? Are you feeding your body the right way? Are you drinking water? Mm-hmm. Are you sleeping? <laughs> yep, <laughs> Just yep, yep, basic yep. things that a person like me who didn't think about those things for so long, doesn't, I have to actively practice just being a healthy functioning human being on a very basic level to stay well. And then once, once you're kind of retrained your brain for those things to become a normal, then you can add another layer of whatever you need to do Mm -hmm. for your next step. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think you're such a prime example of individuals who do embrace their sobriety, right? Wholeheartedly. And, and a lot of us on our pink cloud, if you've heard that phrase before listeners, like we kind of jump in and we do want to pay it forward. And we do kind of want to scream it from the rooftops and what we, and it's all coming from an amazing, beautiful, great giving space. But what we don't realize is happening in the meantime is that we're neglecting all of the things that we need to address in sobriety that we neglected for the 20, 30, 40 years of our addictive lives. Um, And I'm like, I just... I know so many people can relate to this and maybe you're in the middle of it. Um, for me, it, for me, it happened two years into recovery that all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, I wasn't taking care of my own mental health. And that was falling apart. Um, because I was just so entrenched in my business and the podcast and the coaching and, you know, all these (laughs) things. And then literally my psychiatrist said to me one day, like, what the fuck are you doing to yourself? Like in those exact words. Yeah, yeah. No, it's real. It's real. So, so to just kind of round out this like story, I mean, my story's not ever done, but I just want to say where I'm at now um, is, is everything. Okay. So I'm, I have this crazy job and I'm, I'm, I'm this chairperson of these recovery houses and I'm just going, going, going. Right. And I'm, I'm in my office and my office is on the street in Seattle airport way South. And there's the methadone clinic is two blocks from me. And there's a bus stop across the street where all the drug deals happen. And I start to get to know the drug dealers. Like, okay, this drug dealer shows up with this day. I need to be passing out test strips because there's going to be a lot of overdoses outside my office. Like it's just tumultuous, crazy insanity every day. Right. And I'm like, I hate this job. I'm really good at it. But I, I can't like, why, why am I doing this to myself? But like, what am I qualified to do? Like, (laughs) and, and so I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and then at the same time, my mom lives in this really tiny town in Eastern Washington. And she's been here for like seven or eight years. And, you know, as I mentioned before, our family has a lot of history of addiction and this and that. Well, her brother, her oldest brother, um, who's been living basically off the grid for his whole life, 
um, started to feel really bad and hadn't been to the doctor in like 20 something years or something was actively using. He finally went to the doctor and his whole body's full of cancer, like his whole, whole body. And so he's at my mom's house now and she's taking care of him. Like she got him new teeth. He's had eye surgery. Like he's a weapon, like he's living his best life right now. And I kept saying like, I wish I had time to go like be supportive of my mom and spend some time with my uncle and just kind of round out this family history. Right. Like mm-hmm. I just want to be a part of it. And all of a sudden, like my recovery house, the one I'm living in one night, it just blows up. Like four of us are voted out me being one of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, okay. Like it was awful. I I'm still sad about the way that it went down but at the same time I felt like the universe is like you're asking for these things and you're not doing anything about it so let me just pull the rug out from under your feet and see what you do and I knew that night I knew it and this is something that we get to embrace in our recovery and our sobriety is we get to be aware of the signs and the signals and the coincidences and the things that show up and we get to act on those um, with with a clear mind. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, huh. So I called my mom and I said, well, you know, this just happened at my house. And she's like, Oh, like freaking out. I go, well, what do you think about me coming over to, to stay with you for a while? And she's like, well, that would be, that would be really cool. But like, what about your kids? And I'm like, my kids will stay here and and I'll figure that out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I called my friend who owns a, this like super cool cafe and this in this little town and I said hey um if I came over would you hire me and she was like hell yes I would (laughs) and so I packed my car (laughs) and I went and talked to my kids again and said I'm moving four and a half hours away Mm -hmm. and they're like what and I'm like but I'm moving to Grams's house and that means you get to come to Dayton. They love it here. That means you get to come to Dayton more often and spend lots of time there. And this is why I'm going. And it's, it's really not an easy decision. I didn't make this decision lightly. It sounds maybe like I did <laughs> the way I'm telling it, but, but at the same time, oh, like I needed some peace. Mm-hmm. I needed some space. Um, and I wasn't ever going to get that doing what I was doing in Seattle. Right. So my kids have been here. I've been here from like maybe a month now they flew over uh, for Thanksgiving week. They were here the whole entire week. Um, I talked to them every day. Um, and I'll be heading over there in about a week to pick them up and bring them back here for, for winter break. And then we'll go, we'll go back to Seattle for Christmas, but we'll be back and forth. Um, I work like four days a week, mm-hmm. maybe 35 hours a week. If that, I was working like 80 hours a week. Like it was insane. Um, I'm sleeping like so well. I, it kind of scares me how calm I am. I, it, I've never been this calm, but this woman said to me the other day, we were talking about it in the cafe and she said, do you know why you're so calm? And I said, why? And she goes, because you're where you're supposed to be. Right. And, and yes, I, I don't want to be away from my kids like this, but I don't see any possible way for me to stay in Seattle and stay sober or 
have any kind of peace or mental health stability because you can't a like afford to live over there like that unless you're you know working all the time or living in a recovery house where you have cheap rent um but but also just the like energy of the city right like I I'm realizing these things I start learning about myself the further and further I get into my recovery is that um I really soak up other people's energies and take them into myself and um living where I was living doing what I was doing I was my my nervous system was on fire all the time all the time I wasn't sleeping I wasn't eating I wasn't drinking water I wasn't (laughs) yeah yeah and I think this story is so valuable because it's just such a testament to what it truly means to be figuring it all out, right? That's what we yeah. said in your intro piece introducing yeah. you to the listeners. Like, Leah's not sitting here saying she's got it all figured out. Like, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea. And so I just love the raw honesty that you have brought to this platform today. And I really, truly can't thank you enough for just bringing the real authentic you with all the question marks, with all the, you know, who knows, with all the, did I make the right decision? I don't know. Like with all of, because that's real life. That's real life. And, (laughs) and, and, you know, if you're listening to this and you're early in your sobriety or you're thinking about jumping in to sobriety and getting help, it's okay to not know and it's okay to be scared and it's okay to change things and sacrifice things. We have to, we have to do whatever, whatever it takes Mm -hmm. to be healthy. And for some of us, that means changing everything, like everything for some of us, it doesn't, but for some of us, we have to change everything. And I don't know. I mean, I'm 46 years old. I don't know what, uh, what it's like to live with a clear head every day. Sometimes I feel like I am on drugs because (laughs) I'm, I'm like, wow, look at how like pretty those trees are. And like, everything's so animated and people are so animated. I'm like, Whoa, like it's completely, it's this weirdest thing. I remember being at the beach one day, maybe a couple months into my, like, after I gotten out of treatment, I was at this beach that I had gone to a million times and I'm sitting there and there's like all these rocks and the water coming to the rocks. And I'm like, those rocks, I wonder how long those rocks have been here. And that water, these waves are like coming back and forth. And then that water's flowing through this water. Like it was like this whole, like aha moment of how the waterways of Puget Sound work where I've lived my whole day. It's just the weirdest, craziest thing, but it's, it's, it's (sighs) recovery and sobriety is not, it's not all easy. There's a lot of hard choices to make but we have, we get this gift of being able to, and whatever you, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I'm, I'm incredibly spiritual. And, um, I always have been and have wanted to grasp that part of myself. And I get to do that now mm-hmm. and really get to pay attention to it. And if we really quiet ourselves 
even just for a few minutes a day, we can hear, we can hear the answers and it, you can listen to your gut. You can feel when something's right or something's not right. And, and you can really flow with that. Doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> Doesn't mean no. it's easy. There are some hard choices to make, but, but it is worth it. My friend Leah, so we're so it. grateful for you to have come on the show today. And we do need to wrap up now. Yes. But I wanted to just ask you for any of the listeners that maybe wanted to drop you a line or follow you on social media, is there a way that they could possibly get in touch with you? Absolutely. Um, I am on Facebook. It's Lola Leah Zoller, Z-O-L-L-E-R. I'm on Instagram, but I don't even know. Like me. You can get it to me later. We'll put I'll it in the show like, notes. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> she won't um, check the message on Instagram anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, I don't know. But yes, absolutely. And, you know, awesome. um, just really quickly, I am um, pursuing my peer support specialist certificate. I'm hoping to um, start working um, a little bit in recovery, starting some support groups because I want I I just I want to give people space to be raw and open and feel comfortable to talk. And I like sharing my story because I think it just helps other people be like, wow, um, I it's okay to talk about these things. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's okay to to get this off of my chest, out of my body, and 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 be free. Right. So thank you for having me, Louise. I really like, I'm so happy to to do this. Of course. No, we're so grateful to you for coming and being with the community. You also now have a new community supporting your journey and your endeavors. So, um, Leah is also a member of the together sober Facebook group. So if you don't know what that is, it is a free Facebook group, just search up together sober. You'll find it. It's also in the show notes, but we would love to welcome you. It's for anybody who really has any relationship with alcohol, good, bad, ugly. We welcome everybody. There's no rules there. Um, And uh, so you can follow Leah's journey in that group as well. But thank you all together, sober listeners for tuning in today. And I know that you have taken multiple nuggets of wisdom from Leah's journey. Um, Her journey is not over yet and we can't wait to continue supporting her in that. So we wish you the best of luck on your journey, Leah. And together, sober listeners, we will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening today. If you liked it, please do not forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. This is the only way we can spread the mission of Together Sober to help individuals find lasting sobriety and mental peace. If you didn't like it, don't even worry about it. You're like totally fine. 